You're listening to Radio Influence. Welcome back to another edition of the Real Animals Podcast, always presented by my good friends at Contender Boats. Today, feeling really, really blessed. Uh, we're going to get joined by another longtime friend of mine from the world of professional bass fishing. He's an Elite Series pro. He's a nine-time Bassmaster Classic qualifier, over $1.1 million in career earnings from the beautiful city of Gainesville, Florida, Bernie Schultz joins us. Bernie, how are you, buddy? I'm good, Mike. How are you doing, bud? You know what? I'm good. I'm good. Um, this time of year, you guys maybe get to settle down a little bit uh, after chasing your tail all season. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of you know been a, a long gone out of season, as you know, because of uh, COVID. We've had numerous events rescheduled and you know, postponed and rescheduled, and then finally got the season wrapped up a couple of weeks ago. And uh, normally we're done in late September, and this year we finished in November. So it's been a long, protracted season. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet you with everything, uh, with everything going on there. So how does how does this whole thing start for Bernie Schultz? How does Bernie go from you know young Bernie to professional bass fisherman? Yeah, man, I totally backed into it, Mike. I, I was a student at the University of Florida. And I'd fished all my life, but uh, never had any experience with competitive fishing. And one of my instructors in at the uh, School of Fine Arts, I was an illustrator in college, and, and that's what my degree's in. But anyway, one of my instructors was in a bass club, and I was wearing fishing shirts, and he noticed, and, and uh, we got a conversation going, and he invited me to fish with him a few times, which I did. And after a while, he thought that I should be involved with the bass club and, and competitive fishing, and one thing led to another. I never had an intention of becoming a professional angler. I totally backed into the sport. That's kind of cool. I, I My my route was kind of similar. That's interesting. I never, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, now that I've been, you know, professionally fishing for over 20 years, they're like, God, you know, is this something you dreamed about as a kid? I'm like, No. Actually, I did. I never, I never thought about it once. The whole thing just kind of happened through competitive, my competitive nature. I like to fish. I grew up fishing, but um, you know, never thought about it as a business or anything. So that's uh, that's that's pretty interesting. So so it, the whole thing for you, because I know you dabble on the saltwater side quite a bit too. Did the whole thing is that because you grew up in Gainesville, or you know, when you were young, did you do both? No, actually, I was born and, and raised to ninth grade in uh, Sanford, Florida. Oh, okay. And my uh, my mom and my grandfather were really the, the motivators, the the ones that initiated my uh, exposure to fishing. Um, and my granddad liked to fish on the Gulf and and uh, on the St. Johns River. We lived on Lake Markham, which was within you know hiking distance to the uh, Weekaver River, which is a, a feeder stream to the St. John's, and I, I just had a lot of diverse-type places to fish when I was a kid. Um, when I got into high school, um, my dad had bought a fish market in Coconut Grove, Miami, and I you know, worked in that market, and I got to meet some of the guys that, that uh, bought fish to the market, and that led to trips out in Biscayne Bay and the Upper Keys. And, uh, you know, living in Miami through high school and the first year of college, 
I did a lot of, you know, snook fishing and bass fishing on the canals and, and sometimes out on the flats. But uh, it wasn't until I got into college at the University of Florida when I met that instructor that he really got me into competitive fishing. And, and I just, uh, like I said, it was never part of the plan, but it, it worked out. So, so as, you, as you venture into professional bass fishing, I have to know, I mean, nine-time Bassmaster Classic qualifier, what's it like the first time you launch the boat at a Bassmaster Classic? And you know that, I mean, it's day one of the Super Bowl of fishing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bigger than life. I mean, it's, you work all year to get there. Sometimes it takes several years to get there, um, and, and I'm in a bit of a slump now. But the first day of that event is overwhelming. There's huge crowds. As you know, the, the, you know, even though we're out there at 5 a.m. in the morning, there can be three or 4,000 people at the boat ramp just to see us take off. Wow. And then once we get in at the end of the day and get um, you know, shuttled over to the uh, convention center or wherever the, the arena is where we weigh in, depending on the, the venue, uh, there can be as many as 60,000 fans, 40 to 60,000 fans sitting in the bleachers watching. Mm. So it's, you know, it's a big deal. It's, there's a lot of media um, aside from the fans. There's always, you know, uh, people watching, people looking over your shoulder. Every little thing you do is, is under scrutiny. So it's, it's kind of intimidating in a way, really. It's, it kind of takes away to some degree, the purity of, of competitive fishing just because of all the hoopla that surrounds it. Yeah, I get that. I, I, I often wonder just, you know, I fished a lot of tournaments and, you know, I fished some day threes where, you know, you got five boats, the top five teams, and, you know, everybody gets their own camera guy and blah, blah, blah. I've done all that stuff on the Redfish tournament side, um, fished it for 10 years, enjoyed it. Uh, you know, really, it's it's a part of – it's a part of – you know, my evolution of why I'm where I am in the fishing business. And I always wondered, I just always thought to myself, I can't imagine being in front of all of those people at a Bassmaster Classic, knowing that that's the Super Bowl of fishing. Um, you know, and again, you know, yeah. you know, you, you got, you earned it. So I, and the, from that part, I get it. I just can't imagine the, how surreal it would be to just be sitting in your boat by yourself or maybe, you know, however that works with one, you know, observer in the boat. And, and it's just your day. I mean, you just, you worked all year to get there. You're in the boat. You're, you're sitting and just waiting for them to tell you you can go call your number. I, to me, that would just be mind-blowing. Yeah, it is. There's, it is surreal. That's a great way to describe it. I mean, it just doesn't feel quite right. It's not like any other tournament through the course of the year. Um the, the pressure is just so much more uh, compounded. Um, it's, it's hard to say, you know, really why, but other than the fan pressure, you know, the, all the observer, observers, the media and all that. But when you get out on the water and, and once you get into fishing, as long as you're not covered up with spectator boats, which can sometimes be a problem, as you know, you, I'm sure you've experienced that in redfish tournaments. Um, you know, if you can get in an area where you're kind of isolated and, and start doing what you're there for, a lot of that can go away. But then as soon as you get off the water, it all comes right back. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, it's, it's cool. You want to be there so bad. I mean, it's, it's the pinnacle of, of competitive bass fishing is to be at the Bass National Classic. But 
you know, then there's the downside of, you know, there's a lot of distractions and, and a lot of um, media scrutiny, fan scrutiny, and, and uh, sponsors are watching. Just a lot on the line. Yeah. Well, and I, I've heard other other guys that have fished it say, you know, it's a, it can be a career maker. So, absolutely. you know, yeah. I mean, you're fishing, not, it's not like a, a, you know, a win in, in Gadsden. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the Bass Master Classic. If you win one, you're immortalized almost. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a yeah. special deal, no doubt. What's 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 Bernie's favorite venue across the U.S.? Is there a venue that stands out that you like to fish more than any others, or something, some lake that you see on tour where you're like, yeah, cool, I love that lake. Yeah, for for bass fishing, it's got to be the St. Lawrence River. It's it's a special place. It runs along the Canadian border through New York. Um, it's gin clear. I mean, it's like Bahama water. It's so clear. Really? Uh, the, the fish are big. They're, they're um, both largemouth and smallmouth. Are, are, there's a healthy population of both. They're quality fish. On average, you need about close to a four-pound average to really have any kind of chance in any of those tournaments, and, and sometimes as much as a five-pound average to win the event. Wow. Um, that's 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 pretty demanding over four days. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, but uh, it's a beautiful place. Plus, it's scenic as all get out. I mean, it's just there's castles. There's there's you know literally a thousand islands in the St. Lawrence River, and that's how it got its name. But there there are homes that are just you know majestic landscaping and 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 beautiful homes up and down that river, and the and the water is just like I said, just beautiful blue clear pristine water and it's, it's full of fish how does how does how does a bass guy attack that how do you attack crystal clear water like that well fortunately smallmouth uh for the most part are an aggressive species of bass they're they're um they don't seem to be line sensitive on a moving bait they can be on finesse tactics when you're slow you know, making a slower presentation but they uh, they respond well to moving baits, topwaters, jerk baits, swim swim baits, and and uh, like spinner baits and, and that type of thing. They do well on all of that. Um, when they're not aggressive, and you have to slow down and and uh, you know go with lighter tackles, soft plastics, and whatnot. But uh, it's kind of the way you know. My approach is similar to the way I fish on the flats in Florida. I, I fish shallow. I look for shallow shoals, sandbars. Uh, grass flats and and I go with um, you know I start at the top and walk down through the water column so I figure out how to connect with the, the better fish and, and it's you know you just got to forget about the clear water and just you know fish the techniques and, and maybe a, you know accommodate the tackle to the situation yeah hmm. that makes sense I, I I always I always try to explain to people or 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 get into conversations, I guess, at least with, with a lot of people. When, when, when you get talking about the bass guys and, and talking about, you know, guys like yourself, like Shaw Grigsby and, you know, so many others, Jacob Wheeler, and it, it, it doesn't matter. The, the names that people know, the, the pro bass guys, right. the best of the best in the country, what is it, Bernie, that makes you guys different? Bass fishing so popular. I mean, from, you know, one end of the United States to the other, you know, in other countries, bass fishing is so popular. It's such a, 
You know, so many people do it. There's so many, you know, local bass tournaments and, you know, my radio show, we get them all the time over here and, you know, uh, Lake Alfred and in, in Winter Haven, you know, we get all these people calling in the, the, this bass club and that bass club. And, you know, you got college kids bass fishing now and all the sport is so incredibly inundated with anglers. There's so many people that do it. What is it that makes the best of the best stand out? How does somebody that wants to be an elite 100 or elite 200 guys in the country, I mean, how do you get there? Well, the, the simple answer, and you could answer this yourself, is, is time on the water. Um, having good instincts is, is really important, and having good skills, casting and, and presenting a lure, those types of skills, those are essential. But um, it, it just, to me, it comes down to time on the water and being able to read habitat in a hurry. And that's the biggest challenge in competitive bass fishing is we're under a limited time constraint. I mean, we only have two and a half days essentially on every event to scout a body of water, get familiar with it, and, and figure out where the better fish are or how to catch the bigger fish. If they're not in an area, what pattern is going to work that will get you through the event? Uh, if the conditions change, you got to be able to adapt and you know, wind directions change, water levels can change in a day or sometimes in hours. Uh, you know, and it's just being able to think on your feet and be adaptable, open-minded, but also have that skill set to go with it. Um, these young guys that are coming out today, Mike, are so good. I'm really challenged to try and keep up with them. They know electronics inside and out. They've got all the skills, you know, the mechanics down to science. Um, it's second nature to them. And when I got into competitive fishing, it was a learning curve. I mean, I, I, I didn't know a whole lot. I knew how to catch bass, but I didn't know how to, you know, pattern fish or, or find fish on reservoirs or, you know, rivers like the St. Lawrence or the Potomac. You know, there's so many types of habitat that bass live in. And I think that's the draw. I think that's the beauty of the fish and the sport is that bass are – you know, they're adaptable uh, creatures. They can live in a, a wide range of, of bodies, of wa- you know, water types, whether it's tidal rivers and, uh, you know, deep mountain reservoirs or, or shallow discount lakes in Florida or desert reservoir lakes. Um, those, you know, those are unique to themselves. The bass find a way to adapt and survive, and, and I think that's the beauty of the sport, um, no matter where you are, whether it's South Africa Japan, Korea, Canada, Mexico, uh, bass, they're even in Europe. I, I fished a tournament in Spain one time, uh, and they had a good, healthy population of largemouth bass. And wherever you go, bass are bass, but it's just trying to figure out what they're doing in that particular type of habitat and zero in on the, on the better grade of fish. To me, I was always, I guess I was just always blown away, you know, in looking at a, at a bass tour schedule, you know, where you're, you know, opening season in Kansas and, you know, guys from Florida now got to go to Kansas or to Texas or Oklahoma. And now you're, you know what I mean? I mean, it was always, and and I guess in my brain, I related to, I related to my first, you know, the first redfish tournament I ever went to when the, when the IFA first had their very first tournament, uh, Captain Billy Nobles and I were, 
fishing together a little bit here on Tampa Bay, and, and it was a Ranger-sponsored deal, and Billy happened to be fishing for Ranger boats. So he called me up and said, hey, they're doing this Redfish tournament in Jacksonville. I'm like, I'm in. I'll pay the entry fees. Let's do it. I'm in. I want to do it. And I was pretty green, uh, and Billy knew that. But but I remember going, and I was catching redfish here in Tampa. I mean, you know, I'm not, I wasn't clueless. I was green. But I'm like, what? The tide's eight feet? Are you kidding me? I'm like, yep. we're in a creek that's only yep. got four foot of water. So in five hours, there's no water in this creek? I'm like, so every fish yep. that I caught today now has to leave, has to go back to the river, and there's eight million creeks. That all looked the same. <laughs> what would make those yeah. fish come back up this creek? And trying to figure, I remember yeah. I was probably in it. I had probably fished a tour for three years already. And again, our tour, you know, if we fished eight or 10 events a year. That was quite a bit. Um, but it was probably three years before I got into Jacksonville and I took a check because I could catch fish pre-fishing. But the pattern, you know, how do you keep them patterned when the when the tides fluctuate like that? Um it was such a such an amazing learning curve, uh, and I, again, just sitting back and looking at the bass schedule and trying to figure out how guys go from, you know, fairly, you know, from seventy degree weather in February in, you know, in Florida, <laughs> to oh by the way we're fishing in Oklahoma and it's going to be thirty, I mean, you know, and, and to and get showing. out and get out there and catch fish and produce because you got sponsors and. You know, I mean, this is what you're doing for a living. It just, to me, seems crazy. Yeah. the um, You know, being the top guy on your home lake is one thing. And, and there's a lot of guys throughout the country that dominate a particular body of water. But the challenge, and like you say, you, you, one week we're in Florida, the next we're in Oklahoma, or we're in Texas, or then we're in the Carolinas. We might even be in California. Um, the desert. Reservoirs like I've fished Havasu and Powell, um, you know that's a, a whole different set of challenges there. But then we work our way all the way up to the uh, Canadian border where we fish, uh, you know, Lake St. Clair in Detroit, or we're on the St. Lawrence River in New York, or Lake Champlain in, in Vermont. It's it's all different, and you're on tidal rivers, you're in natural lakes, you're on on you know uh, muddy rivers like the Mississippi, it's all, you're always dealing with this diff, different and diverse habitat and you have to make adjust, adjustments on the fly. And that's what separates a lot of the guys. You know, it's just being good on your home lakes, one thing, trying to compete and excel in habitat that you're unfamiliar with, that's where the challenge is. Yeah, I would, I would think. I think it was, it might have been at some point this year. Have you ever fished much in Wisconsin? It's the uh, Mississippi River, which is a different animal. When you're up in that part of the Mississippi River, it doesn't look anything like people's most people's perception is a muddy, yeah. wide, slow-moving river that floods a lot. Up in Wisconsin, it's beautiful. It's, the water's clear. There's tons of different types of vegetation, um, you know, rocks and, and rock jetties and rock bluffs and, and backwater streams and, and just very lush green habitat and it and it runs between two mountainsides it's so picturesque mike it's, it's just if you haven't been there you need to experience it well, it's I, grew full up, of bass. I grew up in wisconsin which is what led me to that kind of that question i grew up in central wisconsin i actually grew up on lake winnebago and and i can't remember what i was watching but 
one of the, it might have even been on social media now, the way so many events get pimped out in different lakes. But I was like, man, they're, they're having a professional bass tournament on the lake I grew up on. And when I grew up, we fished for two things, really. We fished for perch and we fished for walleyes. You might fish, fish for sheephead right. too, which is a different, the freshwater sheephead are different than the saltwater sheephead. But, you know, they're, right. they're just, we never, I never bass fished as a kid. Never. And now, my yeah, dad, you know, there's smallies, smallies up there. There's there's phenomenal bass fishing on this lake now. And I'm like, how did all that happen? That's crazy. But as you well know, Wisconsin and Minnesota, that, that region of the country, they have way more water than we do. Sure. Fresh, fresh water. Yeah. Yep. You know, so many lakes and, and so many different types of habitat up there. But, yeah, that's that's God's country up there for fishermen. I mean, that's, there's all kinds of species to catch, and, and bass are everywhere in that part of the country. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me that that whole, that whole thing kind of kind of crawled that way. And now I, now I have to go to Wisconsin and just go to the Mississippi river. I spent a lot of time near the Mississippi, obviously, you know, Louisiana, uh, all that stuff. When you said, you know, floody and Brown and <laughs> lots of current and, yeah. you know, it, yeah, I think, of uh-huh. Venice, I think of Venice, Louisiana right away. Um, let, let's talk yeah. about, let's talk about uh, one of your passions. So uh, you have a passion for, Vintage fishing tackle. I do. It's it's an affliction. <laughs> I do. I, I've been. Uh, I guess my grandfather kind of got me into it. My my grandmother was an antique dealer, and my grandfather always had, you know, old guns. And he was a fisherman. He had a lot of tackle. And I just I think fishermen of any type are collectors. I mean, if you're not collecting vintage lures you're collecting contemporary lures and, and we're collectors by nature. I think every angler out there likes fishing tackle and as much as he can get his hands on. I just happened to focus on earlier stuff and one thing led to another. And, and now it's kind of an obsession. I, I like collecting and researching the stuff. I write about it. My columns at bassmaster.com uh, deal with antique tackle from time to time. And, and I write for some of the collector publications, but it's it's just it's a unique facet of, of fishing. Uh, it's you know they're the tools of my trade, so it just seems natural to want to know more about them and, and the origins of, of where these lures came from. And uh, I, I would encourage anybody that ever listens to this to to pursue it. Um, it. It's a great hobby. There's all different levels you can get involved in. Uh, you can find the stuff at flea markets. You can find it at estate sales. You can find it online. Uh, there's on Facebook. There's a number of different collector groups for different types of tackle, and uh, there's also countless websites. And there's eBay. So sourcing the stuff's not a problem. It's out there. You just got to find your niche and, and pursue it. That's interesting. I actually have, and I don't have a. <clears throat> I don't have. A, I'm not a collector. I just have some stuff that was handed down. Um, I have a hundred year old Tonkin cane fly rod that, that hangs on the wall in my office that I think is just unique because of its age. And then I have a lot of stuff sure. that was my grandfather's uh, old Mitchell three hundreds and, you know, stuff like that, yeah. that, that I, he just, you know, so I, I, I put that all over my office walls uh, amongst some prints and, you know, redfish and snook and trout and some awards and that type of stuff. But it, to me, I've never been able to just get kind of crazy dive into it. I know my buddy uh, 
Ron out at Ron's Tackle Box in Lake Alfred. Have you ever been over to Ron's place? Yeah, 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 I know Ron. Yeah, I thought you might. I thought you might. I know he's supposed to have a lot yeah. of vintage tackle in there as well. So that's uh, yeah. that's pretty cool. What's what's the favorite? Do you have a favorite piece? Do you have anything that, that means the most to you out of your collection? Uh, uh, it'd be hard to single one out. Uh, I, I tell you, the areas that I focus on, Mike, are Florida-made lures. Um, Florida has a rich history in lure making. Right. A lot of the, the big manufacturers up north did their research in Florida in the winter months. A lot of their field testing was done down here, obviously because the lakes were frozen up north, so they'd come down here, uh, test their tackle, and they'd do it in fresh and salt water, not just bass, but they'd test them on snook and, and tarpon and, and uh, redfish, whittles, would bite in salt water. That was part of the testing program. But uh, So, you know, Florida has a, a deep, History, rich history. Um, one company I really like is, is Barracuda brand lures. They were made in St. Petersburg. Yep. Uh, that company was established in the late 20s and lasted to about the uh, probably the late 50s, maybe maybe early 60s. I think it was done by 58 or 59. But anyway, uh, that's just one of numerous Florida manufacturers that I collect. I, I just I kind of like it because I, I was born and raised in Florida and it kind of made the most sense. And, and availability was also part of that, you know, because I'm in Florida. Florida-made lures are easier to find than, than something from up north. And that's kind of consistent with a lot of collectors. They'll collect, a, you know, the, the manufacturers in their own regions or states or whatnot. Some guys venture beyond that. But I also like uh, early miscellaneous companies, which are – that's kind of a weird way to phrase it, but that's how they're kind of cataloged. Uh, smaller companies that had only one or two uh, lures that ever made it to the shelves. Uh, they're they're pretty obscure. They probably had a short production run. Some of them made some really unusual, even wacky type of uh, fishing contraptions. And those are the ones I really like. Anything mechanical, like mechanical frogs or mechanical fish, um, stuff like that that has moving parts, I really like those. I, those are highly sought after and very difficult to find, especially in any kind of condition. But um, I like it all. I mean, do I don't you, collect rods and bills so much, mostly lures. How do you showcase? How do you showcase that? Or do you not showcase it? Do you just put them all in boxes well, and it, go through them? Or do you have a showcase in your office or in your home somewhere? Yeah. I, well, I have a small display at home, but um, I, I tell you, the, the best way is at shows uh, around the country. And there are organized groups that sanction shows. Florida, for example, like our, our buddy Ron, he's a, a member of the Florida Antique Tackle Collectors. We have shows throughout the state several a year. And our biggest show is coming up in February in Daytona at the uh, Plaza Resort and Spa, which is right on the beach. It's a, a really beautiful old uh, vintage uh, hotel. It's the perfect setting for an antique tackle show. But uh, Hundreds of people will come from around the country, even outside the country, to show their stuff. They set up exhibits and compete, actually. Um, some just go for the interaction. Some go to sell, buy, and trade. Um, and there's shows throughout the country like that. So there, it's not hard to find, uh, you know, find your way into this, the hobby. It's just a matter of, of making the first step. Uh, okay. There's a flip a club called the National Fishing Lure Collectors Club, the NFLCC, 
they have a website and they sanction a bunch of shows throughout the country. And uh, that's a good way to get started. How do you, how does somebody let's, let's say somebody listening has, you know, an old tackle box that was their great granddad's or their grandfather's, whatever it may be. How how do they know? How do you find out what you have, what it's worth? I mean, how do you not, how does somebody that is in the business like yourself, not that you would do this, but how does, you know, somebody not come in and go, "Eh, I'll give you a hundred bucks for that tackle box, knowing that maybe there's, I don't know, $500 worth of lures in there. How do you, is there someplace listeners can go to find out pricing? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. If you go to one of our shows, there are guys that will give free appraisals. There's no obligation, no cost. You just show up with your granddad's tackle box and they'll go through it and they'll tell you what's valuable, what's not. And you'll have the option to enter it in an auction. If you decide you want to sell, you can auction it to the highest bidder, which can get very competitive. I mean, you got some of the top collectors around the country and some out of the country that are there hoping to find something rare for their, their own collection. So these auctions could get very competitive. Uh, that's one way. Uh, there are message boards where you can post a picture and ask for opinions. Uh, my advice to anybody that's, that's um, wanting to get a, a true valuation for the tackle they have is to get multiple appraisals and don't sell right away. If you're, if your intent is to sell, get a few different appraisals and, and average those out and you'll get a feel for what you have and, and you won't be taken that way. Unfortunately, you know, there are people in the world that are not very scrupulous and they'll take advantage of somebody that's not knowledgeable of, of what they have. But if you're in a club setting uh, with some guys that are professionals in the hobby, they're they're going to give you an honest appraisal and give you the option to sell it at the show or auction it, so that um, you you see the highest return for your your item. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. I uh, I have stuff. Nothing I would want to sell. All stuff like I said was my dad's, or my grandfather's, or you know maybe stuff. Right, that I, right. You know, but and I, and I enjoy it. I just. It's uh, that's very interesting to me. I always uh, I always enjoy looking at old lures and and just you know I guess maybe because I I'm a fisherman I can appreciate uh, I can appreciate sure. those uh, types of things. It's interesting when when you do seminars and I don't know how it is for you know you guys on the Bass Pro side, but on the saltwater side, you know what's your favorite color is like a is like an automatic question. Um, isn't it right? I mean, everybody's like, what's your favorite color? If you're throwing a hard bait and I'm like, do yourself a favor and think about your granddad's tackle box. And I always go back there because when you open grandpa's tackle box back in the day, there really was, I mean, it was either green or it was red head with a white body. Almost everything. Yeah. Yeah, A lot of that. Yeah. It's so interesting to me that, you know, and I tell people, I'm like, listen, you know, I like colors now. I mean, there's because we have color options. I said, but sometimes simple's really good. You know, white works really, really yeah. good on the saltwater side. It doesn't have to be. You know, I said sometimes I think all the crazy colors are to catch the fishermen as much as they are to catch the fish. And not that the colors don't work because obviously they do. Um, but it's just interesting to me. And again, I, I, I regress a little because of uh, our vintage tackle conversation here. So. Uh, um, let's let's well, talk. It, it, Go ahead. Well, well I was just going to say that's that's the beauty of it, and, and that's, I admire and, and appreciate the fact that you see the value and, and, and 
you know, how meaningful it is to have your granddad's stuff. And, and like you, I have my granddad's reel, and that's probably the most important piece of all the lures that I have. Uh, I have my granddad's reel. I have a bunch of reels, but I have his reel, my grandmother's reel. I have my mom and my dad's reels, and those will never go anywhere. Right, those absolutely. are the most meaningful. Yeah. And that's that's the beauty of the of the hobby. Yeah, no doubt. I have a an old Shakespeare rod, and I have an old maroon Mitchell, one of the very first Mitchells, I think, at least. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I have that, and it, it sits right in front. I look at it every day. Uh, and it's hanging on the wall. And I remember my father, when I got that stuff, I remember my dad telling me when he handed me that rod, he said, boy, this, your grandfather was so proud of this rod. When he bought it, it was the, you know, the top thing on the market. And he spent a bunch of money on it at the time. And, uh, you know, I never mm-hmm. once, I just immediately was like, that has to go on the wall. You know, I never looked it up. I don't know what it's all worth. And it doesn't matter because, again, it's priceless stuff just because it's, you know, family family fishing tackle. Um, but I think that stuff is, sure. that stuff is so cool. So I totally understand your passion for it. No doubt. Let's quickly touch yep. on, let's quickly touch on, on your saltwater fishing passion. If you are, if you're headed for the saltwater, you're looking to get away a little bit, do something different. Where does, where does Bernie Schultz go saltwater fishing and what is he targeting? Most often it's snook on the Gulf. Um, you know, I, I, I don't turn my nose up at anything, that's the beauty of saltwater fishing, as you know, that you know what you're going to catch right. on any given trip. But, but I do like to target snook. I like tarpon, um, I, and I like, uh, you know, bonefish and permit in the keys. I, I try to go as often as I can down there. I, I took a trip with my son recently, and and we plan to go again here in December. Um, my my oldest boy is a, a tackle rep, and he's actually being relocated to Florida, and you're in his territory. His name's Daniel. And he's a, a rep for Shimano and oh, nice. and Costa Del Mar and some yeah for some other brands, but um, he'll, he'll have the West Coast. Is he working for Don Coffee then? He is. That's okay. correct. That's yep. exactly right. Yep, that's what I thought. Yep. I thought those yep. were His, coffee company. Yeah. yeah, Daniel's previous territory was uh, Alabama, Georgia, and parts of Mississippi. But uh, his plan all along was to get to Florida, and they finally have an opening for him down here. So I'll him. have my fishing partner back and. And I'll probably be meeting with him at certain intervals along his travels to try and get him on the water and, <laughs> and chase snook and tarpon down on the West Coast. Well, you should have some, uh, you should have some pretty good pros at his disposal. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pen guy myself, but, uh, you know, the, the, the guys that I know that do fish Shimano, uh, Jay Withers comes to mind. Uh, now the, uh, the, the great C.A. Richardson, some of those guys that are, that are, uh, Shimano pros, um, I'm sure they'll mm-hmm. love spending some time with you guys on the water. That uh, that'll be a blessing for him and and for you as well. Yep, yep. I'm excited about having him back, and he's he's avid. He likes it. My other son likes to fish, but he's not nearly as avid as as my oldest boy. But yeah, that's what we do. And uh, I just need to get him on the polling platform a little more. It seems like I do all the polling these days. And, <laughs> Yeah, you got to change that. At out. some point, that way. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm I'm due. He yeah. owes me. Yeah, I was gonna say you got to uh, you got to change that up. Let me ask you a question here. So, yeah. you know, obviously you've been doing the uh, the bass fishing thing at a super high level for a very very long time. What is there one moment in your career, Bernie, that stands out above everything else? Oh man, 
I'm like a mad housewife. I remember all the bad things. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of frustrating. It's this, you think you'd have all these great memories, and I do, but and maybe this is true for you as well, but I just, man, the things that I blew that, you know, the, the opportunities I blew that could have really made a difference in, in a huge uh, tournament, like the classic, for instance, those stand out and, and it's lost fish or breaking down, you know, having a mechanical failure or something like that. It's just kind of frustrating. Those, those thoughts come first for some reason. I wish they wouldn't, but they do. <laughs> I get but, that. um, Overall, I've had a great, great run. I didn't set any records in fishing. I did have a good run. I was able to raise a family and, and do what I love. Uh, worked with some great companies along the way and got to develop some products that, that have helped other people catch fish and, and learn to fish. So I, I don't really have any regrets, I guess. I, I, you know, there were some I like to do over again, uh, some key fish here and there that would have really made a big difference. But, but it's been a good run, and I – can't really like maybe the probably one of the coolest things that ever happened. I mean, I've, I've had some great moments. I got to, you know, we had a classic where we weighed in in Soldier Field in Chicago. Wow. Uh, I've been to classics where we weighed in in, in the uh, Superdome. Um, classics that, um, well, or a Canadian Open that I won. I won a Canadian Open in, on the St. Lawrence River out of the town of Kingston. And Bobby Orr, the famous hockey player, presented me my trophy. <laughs> and cool. and you know, I've, met, you know, I've met Bobby Knight uh, through oh, yeah. through fishing, and he attended and was a spokesperson at one of our classics. Uh, I've met a lot of really cool people through fishing, as you have as well. And and that's what's cool about it. You know, you just you you don't know really what the next day brings. Yeah, the memories. A lot of it for me too. And when people ask me that question, a lot of it's the people. Um, I fished the Pro Redfish Tournament Trail for 10 years, not as hard as some, harder than others. Probably fished, you know, 8 to 10, maybe 12 events a year. Uh, and I could never get over the hump. I was top five many times. I just could never. So yeah. when, you, when you mention those moments when you, you, you lose a fish, uh, we had a jig head break. You know, I was always in team events. And we had a jig head come right. apart, and I saw the fish. My partner hooked it. We had one seven and a half pound redfish in the boat. We needed one more stud, and he stuck it. And I knew I knew that fish was under that tree because I had just pulled one out of there. I'm like, I'm telling you, there's another one in there. He, it, it, that fish come up and belly rolled, and I'm like, oh dear God, there he is. And the jig head just broke. Um, you know, there's yeah. just moments like that. You know, when you when you zig, when you should zag, or you know, you're fishing the same school of fish as another team, um, and and you know, you end up in fourth place and they end up winning it. You know, when you know you were on the meet, you were in the right spot. Uh, so there's so many of yeah. those interesting, you know, interesting dilemmas. You know, um, it's crazy. Yeah, and I think the difference between. Yeah, you need a Winning, the difference between, you know, competing and scaring the first place team and actually winning it is such a fine line. I just, I just don't think that's a big, you know, it's just to me, it's really interesting. Who, let me ask you this. Who is it um, in the world of bass fishing that, that you look up to, that Bernie Schultz looks at and says, wow, that dude is a beast. Uh, in, in bass fishing, uh, boy, when you say the word beast, that just automatically brings Denny Brower to to mind. (laughs) Denny Brower was, 
uh, you know, he's he's one of those bigger than life guys. And, and I've had some run-ins with Denny on the water. He 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 was very aggressive, very territorial. Um, he was that way with everybody. I mean, he 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 was just he was pretty aggressive on the water. But I, what I admired about him is he did his own thing. He 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 would absolutely sacrifice um, a much easier pattern where you could catch lots of fish and go for a pattern that would only yield four or five bites a day. Um, and, and he didn't care what other people were doing. He would just, he did his own thing. He was kind of, you know, just, a, I don't know how to describe him. He, he just was, did his, he was his own man. He did his own, own mm-hmm. type of fishing and, and didn't matter what the rest of the field was doing. He, he just focused on his own game plan and it stung him a lot, but he also hit some home runs and they were major. Yeah. Um, he's retired now, but, but, um, Denny really stands out as one of the best. Um, Van Dam's hard to beat. Kevin's, you know, he he plays a mind game as well as a on the water uh, strategy. I mean, he's he he likes to get in his competitors' heads, and and uh, he doesn't have any qualms about telling you he's going to kick your butt. He's he's all about it. He likes the back talk. But um, anyway, there, there's just there's a lot of personalities. There's some new up and comers now. You mentioned Jacob Wheeler. That kid's rewriting the record book as as we speak. Um, the talent level is so good now. And like I told you, when I got in, when I got on the tour, it was a learning experience. And, and I, I had to figure out how to compete. I, I knew how to catch bass. But I didn't really have all the tools in, in learning how to, to fish in a competitive atmosphere when there's so much pressure. I mean, you got entry fees and you've got expenses and you've got family at home, depending on your survival and, and, and how you produce on the road. And then you got all these sponsors and media watching you and fans, it, you know, it starts wearing on you and you either find a way to su- survive or you're, you're out. And, you know, the attrition rate in competitive fishing is, is really huge in bass fishing, especially. Yeah. Uh, you know what else I noticed too? And, and I, I don't think I've met, I, I, and I'm sure there is, and, and obviously you've met a lot more of them than I have, but I don't think I've met a bass pro of any substantial ilk, any, I don't think I've met a single guy that I didn't walk away from absolutely blown away at how humble and how nice and how outgoing, how well-spoken. I think that's all part of it. I really do. I think there's something to the mental makeup of that person, you know, Bobby Lane uh, has become a good friend of mine. Such a nice guy. So well-spoken, yeah, just friendly, big, big smile. Uh, you know, Shaw Grigsby, yeah. a, a really good friend of mine for a long time. And just, you know, every time I see the guy, he's just smiling and talking and interactive and happy to be wherever it is. You know, you might, you might be at, at, at power pole. You might be, at ICAST, you might be at a tournament somewhere. Uh, it, it just, you know what I mean? Yourself. Every time I see Bernie Schultz, you're just in a good mood. You're always talkative and friendly and positive. And I think some of that energy from, I don't know if you guys all share that gift. I'm not sure what that is. Um, or if, I'm not sure sometimes I wonder if that's not something you have to have to do exactly what you were just talking about, to be you know, in that constant drive mode 
to stay you know, in a sport that's so popular with so many people doing it and there's so much pressure and, and so many people wanting to be where you are, constantly chipping away at what you've built. I don't know if that's just an inner trait that you guys all have to, to keep your sanity or I'm something. Not sure I don't I know. Yeah, I don't know. It's funny you mentioned the lanes. That's a great family. Yeah. Uh, and Shaw's my neighbor. He's he's right down the road. I grew up competitive fishing with Shaw, uh, in competitive fishing with Shaw. He was in the bass club when I joined it. My first experience was he was my first draw. Literally, he was my first draw in a tournament, wow. and it was a night tournament. And uh, <laughs> I realized real quick I had a lot to learn. That guy was <laughs> on his game uh, at an early age, and. Fortunately for me, I got to fish a lot with him and some other guys in the club that were highly competitive. Um, but, you know, and, and that's true for the lanes. They, their dad fished, and they were in a, a super competitive club in the Lakeland area. And it's, it's kind of who you surround yourself with. You know as well as anybody, uh, if you fish with people that are better than you, you're going to get good in a hurry. For sure. And, and that's my advice to any up-and-comer is, is try to fish with as many people as you can get a feel for what they do, how they read water, how they approach a, a situation and, and how they present whatever lure selection is on that day. Um, those are things that you file away. And as you progress, you'll, you know, it becomes part of your repertoire and, and, and the more people you fish with, the better people you fish, the quicker you're going to get good. It seems to me that the young, <clears throat> a lot of the young anglers today not all of them, but a lot of them seem to show up with a chip. And I struggle to understand the chip on their shoulder. There's no way, and I don't care, and I know some phenomenal young anglers, really, really great fishermen. There's uh-huh. no way at your young age you can know as much as you think you know. There's, there's so much yeah. that goes yeah. into this. To me, it just, I remember, you know, July, this past July, it was 20 years of, of me guiding. I fished uh, professionally on the saltwater side for about a year before I got my license. Um, so 21 years total, not all that long. But I remember sliding into that group, just being lucky, just being around the Jamie Goodwins, the Jeff Hagemans, the Dave Marquettes, the Artie Prices, um, Greg DeVault's all these great saltwater guys. And I just happened to have some friends that just kind of let me slide in that group. So we'd all go to dinner and we'd all hang out in the parking lot sometimes or, you know, whatever it may be. It'd be a group corporate event. Maybe, you know, once I started guiding and and all those guys would be there. And I remember just wanting to keep my mouth shut and listen and learn because there's so much knowledge there. You know, I didn't grow up here. So, you know, and then I watch some of these kids come in nowadays with this giant chip on their shoulder and they're, they're not friendly. They're talking all the time. They're not listening. And I just think to myself, and, and it's not that they're not good. It's not that they don't catch fish. You know, I was catching fish, but I knew the quality of the people that I was around and how great they were and how much I could cut that learning curve if I just kept my mouth shut and listened and paid attention. You know what I mean? What are That's they using? I, what are they, yeah, I, sure. I mean, just... You know, I mean, it's crazy, crazy. That's exactly how I did it. Like I said, when I got on tour, it became a learning process. And, um, you know, guys like Larry Nixon, Tommy Martin, Roland Martin, um, you know, Guido Hibden, Denny Brower, there were just so many 
top-notch fishermen, and I'm rubbing elbows with those guys on the water and, and picking up their their um, techniques and, and their approach with each each day on the water. And it was it, it was it was a neat way to learn. And, and I, I see what you're saying that kids are well versed coming in, and, and there is a certain amount of arrogance with with that for some of them. But not all. No, not there's, all. There's sure. a lot of young guys. Yeah. Like, for instance, right now in the Elite Series, we've got a whole generation of young anglers in um, that are just very respectful, uh, and they're good. They're, they're, they don't try to, you know, pretend that they know it all. They just get out there and work hard, and, and they're open-minded, and they try to learn as they go. But they are, the bar is so much higher now than it was when I started. Uh, anybody getting in now, you've got to really know your stuff and, and, and every aspect of, of your electronics and, and how to read water if, if you expect to survive in this sport. Yeah, no doubt. Well, congratulations, Bernie Schultz, on a great career so far. One of my favorite people. I always love running India. Uh, I appreciate your friendship. Likewise. I appreciate you taking a little time with me. I know you guys, your off-season, your downtime is pretty important, spending time with your family. So I appreciate you uh, giving a little bit of it here to the Real Animals family. Uh, hopefully we can get together and talk soon. Uh, enjoy the holidays, all that good stuff. Enjoy some time with your family and, and enjoy your son coming back to Florida. That sounds like it's going to be awesome. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. And, and likewise, and hopefully someday we'll get on the water together. Yeah, I'd like that. I'd like to maybe get together with you sometime. We'll have to talk. Maybe we can get together and film a show. Do a little Real Animals, sure. Real animals Adventure and uh, have old Bernie put me, yep. on the, put me on the meat somewhere. That'd be fun. Wow, I hope you guys enjoyed that Real Animals podcast. My good friend Bernie Schultz there at Passion for Vintage Lures. You can kind of kind of hear it uh, in his voice there. You know, great saltwater fisherman. Again, anytime you're an elite series bass pro, uh, you've accomplished something over $1.1 million in career earnings and just a great, great human being. He's been a good friend to me in the fishing business for many, many years. Nine Bassmaster Classics. That, to me, is just is just a mind-blowing number. Just uh, really enjoyed that podcast. And again, I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Real Animals Podcast, always presented by Contender Boats, and they are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, ritampabay.com, and Spotify. Most importantly, remember to subscribe, rate, and review. We're going to try and drop these on you each and every Tuesday. Stay tuned for more. If there's anybody that you'd like to hear me do a podcast with, feel free to reach out to me. On my social media outlets, you can go to Facebook slash Real Animals. Check us out there. You can reach me through uh, Instagram at Real Animals TV and on Twitter at Real Animals Fish. We appreciate you guys. Have a great day. Radio Influence strives to bring you excellence in podcasting. We work with personalities like TV chef Brian Duffy, radio personalities like Ian Beckles, news and political pundits like independent journalists Frank and Tracy Beans, experts from the sports world like veteran football scout and coach Chris Landry, pro wrestling personality David Penzer, MMA experts Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan, and strength and conditioning coach Jeff Crushell. If you're looking for food, sports, music, entertainment, politics, no matter the topic, Radio Influence has something for everyone. Everyone. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.